This week, are antidepressant medications associated with cardiovascular risk? And can depression be prevented in primary care practices? Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. I'm your host, Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. I'm joined today by my good friend, Rena Patani, who is an internist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Hey, Rena, how's it going? Good, thanks. How are you? I am great. So, Rena, does it feel a little weird to be two internists who are going to spend an entire episode talking about depression? You know, while I agree with that to some extent, I, I think that given that depression is so pervasive, it is going to affect every clinician in every discipline. So it's something that we all need to brush up our knowledge base on. Okay, yeah, I agree with you. I'm all for that. So help me brush up my knowledge base on uh, antidepressant medications and cardiovascular risk. Great, thanks. So this was a paper published in BMJ in February 2016. As you mentioned, it's looking at the risk of um, cardiovascular outcomes in patients using antidepressants, but specifically among patients aged 20 to 64, which has been a cohort of patients that hasn't been studied directly in the past. And um, it was a cohort study using a primary care database. Just to jump to the bottom line, this paper essentially concluded that the use of antidepressants, specifically um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, which are the most common, among patients who are age 20 to 64 are not associated with worse cardiovascular outcomes, things like arrhythmia, myocardial infarction, and stroke or TIA. And in fact, there was a suggestion that SSRIs might be associated with a reduced risk of arrhythmia and MI. So I think that's um, an important new conclusion for all of us since there has been some longstanding hesitancy to use antidepressants because of potential adverse drug effects. Uh, Okay, perfect. So that kind of leads into the question of why do this study and why did you want to talk about this study? Yeah, so we already discussed the fact that depression is extremely common. It's a major contributor to the global burden of disease, and it's a leading cause of disability, especially among young working adults. There's also evidence that shows that depression in and of itself can lead to worse cardiovascular outcomes. And that makes it difficult to study whether antidepressants may may result in worse cardiovascular outcomes because um, there's a form of confounding known as an indication bias that might be at play in many of the studies that are evaluating this question. What was meant by that is, is it the drugs that are causing adverse effects or is it the underlying disease in and of itself? That hasn't really been teased out very cleanly in the literature to date. And because antidepressants are being prescribed so much more frequently around the world, um, the, the investigators here thought that they would try to tease apart that subtle difference and nuance. Okay, perfect. And so how did they go about trying to tease apart this difference? So they undertook a cohort study. They wanted to look at um, all UK general practices that fed into a single database called the Q Research Database. It's a primary care database. And through that database, they had access to 12 million patient records that were from longitudinal clinical exposures that comprised over 600 general practices. And they basically set out to um, look at patients who were age 20 to 64, who had a new diagnosis of depression. And then they looked at various classes of antidepressants that might have been prescribed to them. Those classes were then grouped by tricyclics, SSRIs, and then they had a catch-all of other types of antidepressants. 
and they looked at the dose and duration by which patients received these antidepressants. And then the outcomes of interest, as mentioned, were a first diagnosis of arrhythmia, myocardial infarction, and stroke or TIA within five years of follow-up. Okay. And uh, is this database based on like electronic medical records or something? Do you know? And whether uh, you mentioned that they, so it's patients who had a first diagnosis of depression, they have all this pharmaceutical data, and then they also have outcomes data? Yes, it is based on electronic medical records. So part of the inclusion criteria was that a patient had to be um, enrolled within that practice setting for about 12 months, and they also had to, that practice setting had to have an EMR um, that documented the new diagnosis so that um, there was no, there, it was sort of a prospective observation of the diagnosis before the outcome was observed. Right. Okay. And so uh, tell me, what, what patients were included? Were there any exclusion criteria? Yeah, so their inclusion criteria were fairly simple. It was just that there needed to be a first recorded diagnosis of depression for a patient between January 2000 and July 31st, 2011. And they selected the first presentation because um, they didn't want any previous presentations of symptoms to have resulted in prescription of medications that would influence what drug they were being given during the period of observation. And they also, as mentioned, needed to have been part of the practice for at least 12 months, and there needed to be an EMR active um, within that practice setting. With regards to the exclusion criteria, they could not have had a previous diagnosis of depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, or any other psychotic disorders. They um, should not have previously received lithium or any antimanic drugs. They should not have previously received antidepressants, either before the study start date, before the patient registration date, before the patient turned 20, or even 36 months before the first recorded diagnosis of depression. And um, they also had to exclude temporary residents because they wanted to ensure that there could be a longitudinal period of observation. Okay. And so you said the fundamental insight here is attempting to get beyond indication bias as a confounder for the relationship between the medication use and cardiovascular outcomes. So how did they do that analytically? Yeah. So they, what they did is that in terms of their unexposed reference category, they used periods of unexposed time in the patients themselves who had been treated at other periods of time during follow-up as well as person years from the patients who didn't receive any antidepressant treatment at all through the follow-up but had a diagnosis of depression. So essentially what they're doing is they're comparing the exposed time to antidepressants against unexposed time to antidepressants among the same patients. Okay, and did that include... So I guess in their database, they're able to determine who is taking the medication and when they're taking the medication? So that's a limitation of the study, is that they can't get down to the micro level to that extent to know whether a prescription actually translated to taking the drug. So their assumption is that a prescribed medication was being taken with 100% adherence. Yes, which is not a good real-world assumption. They essentially allowed a gap of no more than 90 days between prescriptions in order for them to flip from exposed to unexposed categories. Okay. So if the if a renewed prescription was filled within 90 days, they were still considered to be exposed. Okay. Uh, and so tell me what they found. So um, essentially they, they followed patients until death, until they left the practice, until there was an end of a five-year follow-up 
for that patient or they had an event. And um, I'll just add the note as well that at the analysis stage, because they were looking at three different outcomes, arrhythmia, myocardial infarction, and stroke or TIA, for each of those outcomes, they excluded patients if they had already had that individual outcome at baseline. And they also documented there's obviously many other possible confounders, some that they would potentially be able to identify and others that are hard to identify. But they did try to document some of the other possible confounders and adjust for them. Things like age, the year of diagnosis of depression, the severity of depression, um, the level of deprivation suffered by the included patients, which they determined using their geographic location of residence, um, smoking status, alcohol intake, other comorbidities, ethnicity, and so on. Okay. So what did they find? So initially, they established a cohort of just over 325,000 patients with a first diagnosis of depression over that study period. And then by the time that they considered all their exclusion factors, they had about 240,000 patients remaining. And this amounted to a total length of follow-up of about 1 million person years. So quite impressive. And to give you a snapshot of what these patients look like, their mean age was 39 and a half years, so younger cohort. 61% of them were women. 95% of them were designated either white or had no recorded ethnicity. So, um, And there were about 50% of them who had no recorded ethnicities. So still then, there were a minority of patients who were non-white. In terms of the depression severity among these patients, it was mild in the majority at about 70%. Almost half of them were non-smokers. The majority of them had drinking patterns that were in a safe range. And their comorbidity burden was pretty low. So about 2% of them had a history of coronary artery disease. 3% had diabetes. 7% had hypertension. Among all of the antidepressants that were prescribed among this group, SSRIs were the most common, with citalopram being the most common among those at about 31%. Over that follow-up period, over 200,000 patients actually received antidepressants. So there were some people who were being diagnosed but not treated. That was about 87%, 88% of the patients who received treatment for the depression, and that was, accounted for 3 million prescriptions. And the median duration of treatment was about 221 days, so seven months roughly. Okay. So the results themselves. So the, the, big, the big headline. The big headline, so there were, in five, year, five years of follow-up for, for each of the patients, there were low absolute numbers of events. So maybe we could start just with myocardial infarction. There were 772 in total. And over that period, there was no association between myocardial infarction and any of the antidepressant drug classes. There was an incidence rate of about 8.6 per 10,000 person years. And... Um, what was interesting that in the first year of follow-up, it did appear that SSRIs might actually reduce the risk of having a myocardial infarction with an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.58 and confidence intervals that were statistically significant. Fluoxetine had the biggest effect in that regard, which is kind of an interesting finding. Well, it's, I guess, an association, so be associated with a reduced risk of cardiovascular events. And then you kind of wonder... I, again, I'm not sure that you actually get away from the con the indication bias confounding because there's a there's obviously a difference between the patients who were prescribed an antidepressant and those who were not um, when those decisions are not made with random allocation, right? And so it's hard to say, I guess, that uh, 
they they actually have an effect. Absolutely, like it's hard to attribute causality. But I agree with you. It's a it's an interesting observation. It is an interesting observation. I I totally hear what you're saying, but I guess that this observation does have some biologic plausibility in the sense that if depression itself is associated with worse cardiovascular outcomes, then if you potentially minimize symptoms and improve health, then that might have a downstream effect. But the second point is that there's some evidence that SSRIs actually have a mild antiplatelet effect. So there has actually been some hypothesis generation that maybe they actually could have an antithrombotic mechanism of action that hasn't yeah. really borne out in other studies but okay that's what i was gonna ask it's it's interesting because we know that there's an associated bleeding risk with ssris that's um, right and so uh yeah it, i totally there's some biological plausibility it's an interesting hypothesis i guess the question is why doesn't it sustain over time yeah i think that's a very fair point and it also, I think the other interesting question is that that same pattern has not been observed in patients over the age of 65, because these group of investigators had previously done a study in that cohort and didn't see the same results. And that would be a population you think might gain a greater benefit if there was an antiplatelet mechanism to the use of these Yeah, drugs. you would assume people with higher baseline cardiovascular risk would benefit more. Yeah, that's potentially. right. Potentially. Although I guess there are possible, are there possible... Well, we're kind of jumping into the, the mechanisms here. Do you want to tell me about um, the other outcomes first, and then we'll jump back to the... Yeah, that sounds like a wise idea. So with regards to stroke and TIA, there were 1,106 episodes. And again, over the five-year period, there was no evidence of an association with any of the antidepressant classes. The incidence rate in this case was about 12.3 per 10,000 person years. And finally, for arrhythmia, there were 1,452 cases of arrhythmia that were documented. And once again, no significant association for any of the drug classes, an incidence rate of about 16.2 per 10,000 patient person years. Okay, perfect. So, I mean, the, the bottom line is that there was no observed association between uh, the antidepressant medications and adverse cardiovascular outcomes. The question I have, well, for we kind of started digging into it is, why might there be an association between these two things? So either in the positive direction or in the negative direction. So the arrhythmia one is the one that might be the most familiar to many of us in internal medicine, especially because we often cite antidepressants as being a cause of QT prolongation, which it most certainly is. Um, and so that can obviously lead to the dreaded complication of torsade de point. So that was the the reason for considering arrhythmia as one of the possible adverse events. And then um, in terms of possible mechanisms by which these drugs could contribute to MI and um, stroke or TIA, I'm not sure. I think it is, again, that this this study was designed to try and ask that question because previous studies have observed that there has been increased risks of MI and stroke or TIA among patients who are taking antidepressants. But again, because there was concern about indication bias, because most of those studies were done in older populations, um, it wasn't clear whether the antidepressants were the direct contributing factor. Uh, perfect. And then I guess that that raises my second point, which is, so this was a low cardiovascular risk population. And Given that the supposed mechanism of these drugs causing adverse cardiovascular outcomes are things like arrhythmias, uh, do you think that actually, so while it's important to establish that there's no 
risk in these uh, low risk patients that, you know, there's no association in these low risk patients. When we start talking about older patients, uh, presumably we can't extrapolate these findings to that other patient population. You're right. We can't extrapolate this. There have been other studies conducted in older populations that have not shown the same associate, the same lack of an association between antidepressants and these adverse outcomes. So observational studies in patients over the age of 65 have shown an increased risk of MI with the use of antidepressants. And a meta-analysis of SSRIs and stroke found increased risk as well. But that, again, included slightly older patients. And there were no studies included in that meta-analysis that focused on younger patients. So we can't extrapolate what we see in this study. Yeah. And it's also interesting, like we sort of talked about how there's different results being observed among patients who are younger and patients over the age of 65. And it's not really clear to a great extent why there is that age dependence. It might be because older patients are more sensitive to the side effects of these drugs. Maybe they're taking more medications and so there's more drug interactions. Or maybe they just have a higher morbidity burden in general and a higher event rate in general for these outcomes. So um, questions for future investigation. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks, Rena. Great, uh, great paper. And uh, at least makes me feel safe about uh, these medications in younger patients. Absolutely. I agree. Um, Okay. Let's change gears. Sort of. We're still talking about depression, but I wanted to talk about a study about efforts to prevent depression in primary care practices, which was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. This sounds like a great paper. I can't wait to hear you talk about it. Yeah, so this was a cluster randomized control trial in Spain, which found that an intervention in primary care practices to try to prevent depression showed a modest but not statistically significant reduction in the incidence of depression in primary care practices. That's great. Great news. So I'm hoping you'll tell us a bit more about how they actually carried out this intervention. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I've ever heard someone get so excited for a not statistically significant outcome. Well, because I think it's important to also keep in mind clinically significant. And I think if you could have an intervention that can make a difference to patients at at the individual level, it's still perhaps there were factors in the study itself through through the numeric side of things that made it so that this wasn't statistically significant. Yeah, I think we could dig into it. I think we will all want to hope that there's uh, potential here. Um, And I think that one of the main takeaways, which we'll get to at the end of this, is that the authors have taken the learnings of this study and tried to hone the intervention and are studying a new version of the intervention. So hopefully they will be able to achieve uh, a more impressive and more perhaps a more targeted uh, intervention or more impressive result. Uh, over time through iterations of their intervention. So it kind of comes down to, I think, a really hopeful idea that we can prevent depression. So that was the basis for this study. Great. So can you tell us a bit about the methods? Yeah, absolutely. So this, as I mentioned, was a cluster randomized study in primary care practices in Spain. It involved seven Spanish cities Uh, with 10 primary care practice centers in each city, so in total 70 centers. Uh, And in each city, five of the centers were assigned to the control group and five to the intervention group. So the randomization occurred at the level of the center. And the intervention that they developed was predominantly focused around 
the primary care practitioners. So they had a 10 to 15 hour training workshop for primary care practitioners around uh, screening for depression and managing depression. And we can get into the details of that later if you wish. And then they provided these primary care practitioners with a prediction tool, which these authors themselves had developed in the past. And that tool was used with patients to communicate uh, the individual risk of each patient for ultimately developing depression. So it sounds like kind of the equivalent of the Framingham for cardiovascular risk stratification. Yeah, exactly. A predictive risk, a predictive tool for uh, an outcome. So in this case, they call it the predict D tool. Uh, And they then had some resources like a patient booklet about preventing depression. And then primary care providers were expected to develop a tailored intervention for each patient, which may have involved uh, uh, prescribing medication if necessary, may have involved uh, uh, several other elements of the therapeutic relationship. So sort of supportive counseling. They talk about uh, uh, social prescribing. They talk about uh, caring in a family-based model. So there's all these different things that we could also dig into there. Um, And so that was their overall intervention. So train the primary care providers create a a risk prediction tool for the primary care providers to identify risk in their patients and then provide some information and and some recommendations for those patients uh, based on their individual risk. So very patient-centered, biopsychosocial, holistic approach. Yeah, that's right. Um, With the intervention really focused on the care provider Mm -hmm. uh, in the sense of the the educational intervention and the resources and then having the care providers deliver the intervention in a patient-centered way. And this all comes out of the work that uh, these authors and others have done in the area of preventing depression. So there is some evidence that it's possible to prevent uh, depression especially in uh, certain patient populations. So there's been some work, especially in children and adolescents. There's been some work in uh, workplace environments. Um, And basically, the weight of the existing evidence suggests that you can have uh, modest benefit in reducing the incidence of depression uh, through targeted interventions, and that these interventions are actually more likely to be successful when they focus on people who have risk factors. So they call it a selective prevention as opposed to global primary prevention or universal prevention. Um, And uh, I guess it's not surprising. Like you said, it's very similar to the model we would employ for cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. And I guess just one question. So when you mentioned that the primary care physicians would tailor the intervention themselves, and it wasn't necessarily standardized across all of the practitioners, is it that they're they were asked to design an intervention which they would then implement to each patient that they saw? Or was it tailoring even at the level of each patient? Yeah, at the level of each patient. So basically, they would they were given this risk prediction tool. They would do the risk prediction tool with the patient. And then through a conversation with the patient about their individual risk factors, they would address the patient's risk factors for developing depression and come up with a strategy with each patient for Uh, trying to reduce the risk of depression. So in the control group, the physicians did not use this prediction tool for risk of depression. Uh, They also didn't attend the training workshop. 
and the patients in the control group received usual care, with the exception that they were assessed for new onset of depression, anxiety, uh, and some other survey information at the same intervals as the patients in the intervention group. So they still collected the outcomes, obviously, in both groups, but otherwise they received the same care. And could you just speak to um, who was actually collecting the outcomes? Was it the physicians themselves? No. So they had a different study staff or investigators who were involved with collecting the outcomes. So one of the things that's difficult with a study like this is obviously you can't blind people to the intervention. So it's obvious to the patients and the physicians uh, who is involved in the intervention. So the people who assessed the outcomes were blinded to the study allocation. Okay, that sounds great. So what were the outcomes of interest specifically? Yeah, so the primary outcome was new occurrence of major depression during the 18-month study as measured by a specific uh, interview tool called the Composite International Diagnostic Interview. Okay, great. And were there other secondary outcomes they were interested in? Yeah, so they looked at a few secondary outcomes, including depression at six months, depression at 12 months, and also at anxiety. So what did they find? Yeah, so they were able to enroll just over 3,300 patients. And what they found was that at 18 months, 7.4% of the patients in the intervention group had developed major depression, as opposed to 9.4% in the control group. So this is an absolute difference of about two percentage points, which would be a number needed to treat of 50. Uh, But the uh, finding was not quite statistically significant with a confidence interval that just crossed zero. And what were some of the reasons that they thought might have been contributing to the fact that they didn't achieve significance? Yeah, there are a couple of limitations to the study. So one important point is that while the the study was cluster randomized, which means that centers were randomly allocated to being an intervention center or a control center, they actually recruited and enrolled physicians and patients on an individual level. So within the intervention center, then they approached physicians and they approached patients for involvement in the study. And so they were not able to recruit 100%. So for the patients, for example, uh, they were only able to recruit 67% of patients to the control centers and 76% of patients in the intervention centers. So you have some selection bias coming in right there, which is actually likely to amplify your effect size, not make it smaller, right? So that if anything, that Uh, suggests that maybe the effect is not as large uh, as was observed. Uh, So that's one limitation. Another limitation was loss to follow-up. So at the end of the study, about 84% of patients had data for the primary outcome. So, you know, what exactly what happened to that 16% of people who were lost to follow-up is an important limitation uh, and could really push the result in either direction. Absolutely. 16% is pretty sizable. Like I know that we used to hope for 80% follow-up, but I guess increasingly studies are asking for even 90% follow-up. Yeah, certainly you can, you you know, I think the key with loss to follow-up is you compare it to your effect size, right? And can the number of patients who were lost to follow-up affect the difference between groups? And so if the difference between groups is 2% of your sample, and 16% of your sample was lost to follow-up, then obviously differences in that group 
could affect the outcome. Absolutely. Uh, you know, they're, I think, taking the results of this study and they have honed them into uh, perhaps a more, they actually don't describe what the new intervention is that they're working on. They just say, we have taken the learnings from this study to develop a new intervention, which we were then going to be rolling out and evaluating. Mm-hmm. So I think that the, you know, the takeaway from this is still hopeful. Uh, I, I'm not sure it's as excited as as we had hoped it was at the beginning of this study, which is that there does seem to be some effect. It seems to be possible to predict the risk of depression, and, and that seems to inform a, ta- a tailored primary care intervention that was associated with a reduced rate of, uh, of depression. It just wasn't so big an effect that it was compelling, uh, and the study wasn't so flawless that you can totally trust this result. And, you know, I think there are some real concerns about generalizing this to a larger population. Um, And the authors themselves say that they don't feel that this is ready for prime time, but they think that it's an important avenue to continue to explore. Basically, they've kept themselves in business, in the academic (laughs) business. Um, and, uh, And it'll be interesting to see what they come up with next. It will definitely because an NNT of fifty is is pretty impressive. It's, it's much better than to, cardiovascular disease numbers yeah, needed to treat. Absolutely. So hopefully, as they continue to tailor it, they'll finally um, publish a study that shows a good effect size as well as statistical significance, so that we could broadly apply a related yeah. tool to this. Um, okay. Thanks, Rena. Thanks so much, Amal. Let us change gears again and talk about our good stuff recommendations. So, Rena, tell me something that caught your eye from the world of medicine this week. Sure. So, I wanted to share an article in the Globe and Mail from mid March that was basically talking about a proposal to introduce three new safe injection sites at Toronto, which would be a first for Toronto. The only ones that currently exist in Canada are in Vancouver. And so um, it's just sort of highlighting what's driving that need and um, how safe injection facilities um, might be better for neighborhoods as well as for these these patients who are suffering severely adverse outcomes from not having um, safe supervised facilities in which to um, inject when they're suffering from addiction. Perfect. That's great. It's a very interesting and important initiative. So it'll be good to see what comes from that. And how about you, Amol? My good stuff recommendation is an article that was published in the New Yorker called Runs in the Family. And it was published by uh, Siddharth Mukherjee, who is um, the famous author of The Emperor of All Maladies, a biography of cancer. And so he he has previously, he's obviously, he's a beautiful writer, he's an oncologist, um, and he writes this article in The New Yorker about schizophrenia and mental illness and the genetic associations. And it's anchored in a story about his own family uh, and mental illness that runs in his own family. And he explores some of the new genetic uh, roots of those diseases and how it helps him understand uh, his family's relationship to mental illness. And uh, I thought it was really beautiful. And as with all of his work, quite an uh, amazing combination of uh, arts and sciences. That's great. I look forward to reading it. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks so much, Reno. It was great to chat with you and I uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, Amol. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable. 
or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for listening.